0: You know, it was uh, in 1986 when I first felt God calling me into the ministry, and I surrendered my life to the gospel ministry uh, there at Corinth Baptist Church in Lake Park, Georgia. My pastor, Stanley Luke, is still one of my dearest friends in the ministry. Spoke to him last week, actually. And in 1986, uh, the church licensed me into the ministry. That just means that they authorized me to begin to serve in various ways, uh, including doing funerals and weddings and things of that nature. And then in 1989, I accepted my first call to be a pastor at Elam Baptist Church in Quitman, Georgia. And Elam Baptist Church and Corinth Baptist Church did what is called an ordination service, where you were set apart into the gospel ministry, uh, formalizing your call uh, as a pastor. And I was humbled and honored to serve uh, those two churches and to be ordained by them. Last week, I spoke to the man who actually preached the sermon that day uh, during the ordination service. There's that point in the ordination service when the pastor who's preaching preaches directly to you, the candidate who is being ordained. If you've ever come to church and you felt like I was talking to you, uh, I know how you feel because on that day, Dr. Clyde Stokes was preaching a message directly to one person in the room and that was me. And he reminded me last week of what he had shared with me. He said he actually found his sermon notes from all those years ago when he preached my ordination sermon. And what I want to do is take you to that passage of scripture that he preached to me. And now I'm going to preach it to you. It's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I'll always remember Dr. Stokes saying in his sermon to me, Ricky, never use people to build your ministry. Use your ministry to build God's people I've always remembered that, and I'm grateful for that. And in that moment, I was challenged with these verses of what to do as a pastor. Now, there are other scriptures that inform a pastor of what his role is among the body of believers in the church. But this is a central passage of scripture because it gives the pastor and the preacher his mandate, his work, his job. Many, many years ago, Art Linkletter uh, asked a little girl, what does your daddy do for a living? And she replied, oh, my daddy doesn't do anything. He's a preacher. And so maybe that's how you feel. What, what do preachers even do? You know. Uh, and so this will give you a little glimpse into what a preacher does. There's a lot more than what we'll find here in these verses, but this is a central component of what a pastor is to do. And the reason I'm sharing it is to give you a little insight into who I am over these last 28 years, but also to help you as you think about who God is calling to be your shepherd in the days ahead. Because this is not a suggestion. What we're about to read is a mandate from God. I want to read these verses together and then we'll come back and walk through them one by one, if that's okay. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, the apostle Paul in the early 1st century, is writing these words to uh, Timothy, his protege in the ministry. And he writes, I charge you, this is Paul charging Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, And exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. God, would you speak to us today through your holy word and help us to hear the word you would have for us in this moment as believers, in this moment as a church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, I didn't put any... Outlines in the bulletin or the digital bulletin. But if you would like to take some notes, there's some observations I'll make today from this passage. The first observation I make is we see the preacher's accountability. The preacher's accountability. You'll see that in verse 1 where Paul says to Timothy, I charge you. He's giving him a solemn command. He's giving him a solemn task. I charge you. And now Paul doesn't leverage his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't leverage his authority as... Timothy's spiritual father in the ministry. No, he leverages the authority of God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the soon coming of Christ and the kingdom of God. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. He's saying the preacher's accountability is to God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross and who will one day... Judge all of us, the living and the dead, the righteous and the unrighteous, and we'll be judged of how we've lived our lives and how we've conducted our ministries. If you're a Christian, when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the uh, judgment seat of Christ, it is not to determine whether or not you are saved, whether or not you get into heaven. That was settled once and for all when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. When you stand before Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, you will stand there to give an account of how you've lived your life, how you've used your opportunities, how you've used those spiritual gifts that God gave you to work in and build up his church, and how you lived out the mission of Christ in the world. We're all going to stand before Christ and give an account, but that is certainly true of pastors who have been given the responsibility to preach the word I remember in Bible college and in seminary having to take preaching classes and one of the most intimidating things you will ever do is to stand in a room full of your peers and the professor and have to preach a sermon. Knowing that you're being critiqued and knowing that you're being judged and knowing that you're being graded while you're doing that. I remember preaching my trial sermon before my professor in Bible college, and I was standing behind the the lectern, and I had my hands on it, and I was looking at my notes, and he threw an eraser and said, take your hands off that lectern. Okay, yes, sir. Don't lean on it. You got to stop. So you try concentrating and preach a sermon when, when professors are judging you. But Paul warns Timothy, there is a far greater responsibility. One day you're going to stand not before a professor, but before the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to get an account of your life and your ministry. Do it well. Don't be men pleasers. Don't seek to be popular. But be faithful. Because you are accountable. If you're taking notes, I've talked to you about the preacher's accountability in verse 1. But look at the preacher's activity. I've already touched on it. Verse 2. And we'll see in verse 2 that our activity, among other responsibilities, is to preach the word. In the Greek, preach is an imperative, it is a verb, it is a command, it is something we are to do. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul gives Timothy nine imperatives five imperatives in verse 2, four commands in verse 5. And they remind the pastor of what he's to do. First of all, he is to preach. The word. That word in the Greek means to be a herald, uh, to to go out and to proclaim. It was from uh, Roman society where the king, the emperor, would select someone, relay a message from the king to that messenger, and then send him out throughout the empire to proclaim the message of the king. It wasn't his message to mess with or to make up. It was his message to faithfully proclaim. And Paul uses that same concept to preach the word, herald the message of God Himself. The scriptures are God's word, Old Testament and New Testament. They are holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant. And it is our job not to make it up or to mess it up. Our job is to faithfully preach it and declare it. And He says, Preach the word, and then He gives another command be ready. It's a word of urgency. You've got to be ready at any moment to proclaim God's word, whether it's formally behind this kind of a pulpit, which they didn't do in the first century. They met in homes. Or whether you're just meeting with a person or meeting with a group of people. When the time comes to proclaim God's gospel, you need to be ready, Timothy. And he says, be instant in season and out of season. In other words, preach it when it's popular. Preach it when it's not popular. Preach it when they crowd in the room to hear you. Preach it when they walk out of the room because they don't want to hear you. You preach the word, be ready, be instant in season and out of season. And then he gives three more commands. Your preaching ministry ought to do three things. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Reprove means to convince or to persuade a person of the error of their ways. Sometimes preaching just steps on toes as we say here in the South, right? And sometimes we need to be reproved. What's going on in our lives isn't right and it's not pleasing to Christ. And God's word convicts us and speaks to us about that. And sometimes we get reproved. Other times we're rebuked because we refuse to get right with God. And our sin is called out. And sometimes people get offended when their sin gets called out. Well, your wife didn't call me and tell me to say anything it's just God's word and the Holy Spirit convicting you about that. Maybe you ought to feel the work of God in your life if you ever feel rebuked, confronted by God's word about your sin. But also there should be some exhortation. No pastor ought to be so excited to reprove and rebuke. That only comes as God's word allows, and we don't take any joy out of it, And if you're a true preacher, you're going to be the first one reproved and rebuked by God's word as God deals with you in your own life and your own walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you have heard me say all these years, I cannot preach to you what God has not first dealt with me about, but a pastor ought to be eager to exhort. That means to encourage. That means to build up. That means to tell people, keep pressing on. God's at work in you. God's with you. God will never leave you nor forsake you. And one of the hallmarks of my life and my ministry is that I've been blessed by God through his encouragement and the encouragement of others, and then I get to pass that encouragement on through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You reprove, you rebu- rebuke, and you exhort. That's the preacher's activity. And because preach the word is a command, I want to thank you as a church for giving me space to pray, to pray, to stay in the word, to prepare messages, and to stand here on a Sunday morning and to preach the word. Thank you for being that kind of church. I certainly make hospital visits and do ministry calls and all of the stuff that goes on in the church, absolutely, but I have had to be intentional about carving out time to be in prayer and in the word so that I could preach the word to you, knowing that you need it, but also knowing I'm gonna stand before God one day. And I'm gonna give an account of every sermon and every lesson I have ever taught. Now, he also mentions not only the preacher's accountability and activity, but look at verses three and four, and you'll see the preacher's adversity. The preacher's adversity. I'm doing this for Ryan. These are good alliterations, Ryan. You'll, You'll need this one day. The preacher's adversity. In verse three, Paul tells Timothy the reason he's to preach the word, to be in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching is because in verse three, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound, healthy, wholesome teaching But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. If that was true in Paul's day, I can promise you it is true in our day. There are people who do not want the healthy, clear unadulterated preaching of God's word. They want somebody to preach what they want to hear. They don't walk into the room saying, here's all of my beliefs, my passions, my desires, my feelings, my politics, my views on the world, my hurts, my habits, my hangups. Let me come and see what God has to say about these things. Instead, they come to church looking for someone to validate what they've already made up their mind about. And if you don't do it, they'll find a preacher who will. That is certainly true in America today when it comes to the clear teaching of Jesus Christ on sexuality and gender. We have abandoned the truth of God's word and we have heaped to ourselves people who will tell us what we want to hear. And Paul says, Timothy, you better be ready because the time is coming. And actually the time is now when people will not endure it They've got itching ears and they want somebody to scratch their itch. And it's all about themselves and their own passions. It is not about God and his will for their life. It is about themselves. And here's what they do in verse 4. He says, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, make-believe, fable. It's amazing to me what people today believe. That just 10 years ago, we would have said, you need some counseling, (laughs) if that's what you believe. We love you, and we have sympathy that we all struggle, we're all messed up, we're all deviants, we all have weird ideas sometimes, but the answer is not to live in fantasy world, the answer is to live in reality and truth. And there is a thing called truth, where reality corresponds to actuality, That's, that's truth. But these people are going to turn away from listening to the truth. And I'm going to warn you, the, the, one of the evidences of faithful preaching and pastors is not that they have thousands of people listening to them. Sometimes the evidence of a faithful pastor and preacher is that people walk away from them and don't want to hear the truth. And Paul warns Timothy that day will come So he talks about the preacher's adversity, and then he talks about the preacher's attitude. If you're taking notes, we've seen accountability, activity, adversity, and now the preacher's attitude in verse 5. He says, as for you, you can't change how people are out in the world. You can't change how people have itching ears. You can't be responsible for them. But as for you, always be sober-minded. This isn't really so much talking about abstaining from alcohol. What he's talking about is that when you... Exercise your gifts of rationality. You need to be serious about the things of God's word. There's a place in church for humor. There's a place in church for lightheartedness. But when it comes to the pastor's task of preaching the word, he better be serious about it. Be sober-minded and then endure suffering because you're going to suffer if you preach the message of the king without messing it up or making it up. Endure suffering. And then another imperative, another command, not only to be sober or endure, but then in the Greek, do, do, do the work of an evangelist. He's saying, Timothy, the reason people are turning away from the truth is most of them are lost. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So it's your job as you preach the word, do the work of an evangelist. Make sure that you're proclaiming God's word. And one of the biggest struggles that any pastor has is the tension of both ministering to the saved but leading that church to be on mission as evangelists and missionaries in their community because most of our neighbors are lost without Jesus. And the easiest thing we could do is just make sure everything we do is about us and what we want and what we like and what we used to do and what we're always comfortable about. But how can we do that if a world's lost on their way to hell? We've gotta be doing the work of evangelist. And then another imperative he gives is not only be sober-minded and do, or do, but also fulfill. Fulfill your ministry, Timothy. Don't fulfill somebody else's ministry. Don't get your eyes on another pastor. Don't get your eyes on another church. You fulfill your ministry. Jesus Christ saved you put you on this race course in your lane. You be the preacher God's called you to be. You be the pastor God's called you to be. In Fort Caroline, that's important. You've allowed me to be me for 28 years. The good, the bad, and the ugly. You've allowed me to be me. And I've made a lot of mistakes. I have many regrets. I pray, I pray, and only Jesus will tell one day that most of my mistakes have been mistakes of the head, not the heart. But I've made mistakes, but I'm also grateful that you've allowed me to be your pastor and to not have to fill someone else's shoes and to be some other pastor that you've always admired and liked and try to emulate that guy. You've allowed me to be me. And I'm going to tell you this. My last Sunday here, Lord willing, unless Christ returns or he calls me home, will be June 26th, and I'm taking my shoes with me. Whoever God calls to be the pastor of this church needs to be the man of God and fulfill his ministry. He can't follow me and say, this is how Ricky did it. We expect you to do it that way. This is how Ricky preached. We expect you to preach. Hey, Ricky could not get five minutes into a sermon without tearing up. We're counting. The clock is ticking. Oh, he doesn't care. He never tears up. No, you just got to let that guy fulfill his ministry. That's the preacher's attitude towards His task, be sober-minded, be ready to endure, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. And the reason Paul is belaboring this point to Timothy is because actually there's more going on behind the scenes in Paul's life than maybe you realize this morning. We now know because of hindsight from history that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy just a few days before the Roman Empire will behead Paul for his faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul knew the time is quickly coming that I'm not going to be on the scene. And it's time for me to pass the baton of the gospel ministry to the next generation who will carry on the work of Christ. Paul says, it was going on before me. I've done what God's called me to do. Now it's time for you, Timothy, to pick up the baton. And that's where we see what I'm going to call, in verses 6 through 8, the preacher's award, the preacher's award. Verse 6, Paul writes, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul uses two images to talk about his impending death. He, he uses an image from the Old Testament sacrificial system, and he uses an image from sailing. On a boat. He says, "For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the priest would often take a, a cup of wine and it would be poured out on the sacrifice. And that wine and the, the steam would go up as a sweet-smelling fragrance to God. And Paul says, "My life has been and is being poured out on the altar of service to the Lord Jesus Christ, and if it takes my very life, it is a sacrifice, Paul says, I'm willing to offer. And he says, in the time of my departure, that in the Greek is a picture of untying a boat from the dock, untying a ship, uh, raising the anchor and setting sail for a new destination. And he says, the time of my departure has come. And and for Paul, death was just a departure. It is to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That while people grieve down here when a person passes away, there are others in heaven who are are greeting their arrival. They depart here, but they arrive there. And there's celebration there. And Paul is saying, I'm ready whenever God calls me. And and then he says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight The word fight in the Greek is agonai. I've fought the good agony. I've given it all I've got. And I've finished the race. This is not a word of discouragement. This is a word of, of completion. I've done what Christ has called me to do. And I have kept the faith. I have been faithful with the gospel that was entrusted to me. I've not wavered from proclaiming it. I have not watered it down I have faithfully proclaimed it, and to God be the glory. And verse 7 may sound like Paul is patting himself on the back and bragging. He's not bragging about himself. He's giving thanks to God who's enabled it to happen. He said, listen, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith, and I'm grateful that God allowed me to serve him. But Paul is bragging on God more than he's bragging on himself. And in verse 8, he says, henceforth, from this day forward, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. On that day that we all stand before Christ. Remember, he just talked about it in verse one. When that day comes where we're all standing before the judgment seat of Christ, there is a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. That crown is not a gold crown or a silver crown or a bronze crown. It is not the the crown of a conquering victor. It is the garland wreath that would be given to athletes at the Olympian games or the Isthmian games. And whenever you looked at this wreath of garland, a crown of greenery, you recognize that intrinsically it has no value. It's gonna wither and fade. It's not like gold, but that's the kind of crown, and it's the crown of righteousness. The crown that will come from the Lord, Jesus, the righteous judge. It is the crown where God says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And everything that happened to you and your ability to enter into my kingdom is because of my righteousness that I have freely given to you. That's the crown that Paul is looking forward to receiving. And and he says, and not only to me, he's not just gonna give this crown to me, but to all who have loved Jesus' appearing. How about you? That means you today. You are referenced in scripture today. If you love Jesus, if you're longing for him to return, if you're looking for him to return, if you're laboring in his church until he returns, Paul says there's gonna be a crown of righteousness that Jesus Christ will bless your life with when you stand before him one day. I do find it interesting though in Revelation chapter 4 verses 10 and 11 that the apostle John in that glimpse of that day that will come when we all are before Jesus saw the 24 elders and they had been given crowns by Jesus. But the Bible says in Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. I think that's what we're all gonna do when we are before Jesus and he puts crowns on our heads. We're going to say, no, Jesus. We're going to throw him at his feet. You alone are worthy to be praised and to receive all glory because anything good in me or through me is because of you. Amen. It's all your grace. And Paul says to Timothy, I'm passing the baton to you, Timothy. Run your race. Do what God's called you to do. Preach the word and do it with the eye on that day when you stand before Jesus and you give an account of your life and ministry. We're all called to do different things in God's kingdom. Some are called to be pastors and preachers. Some are called to be deacons. Some are called to be life group leaders. Some are called to serve on a finance team or a personnel team or board of trustees. Some are called to work in the lawn care team. Some are called to work in our safety team. Thank God for them. Some are called to work in the nursery. Many are called, but few are chosen. (laughs) And uh, so thank you for whatever it is you, whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. Do it with your eyes on him. Do it based on his grace. Do it for his honor and for his glory. And when Paul is off the scene, he wants Timothy to keep going. And when I'm off the scene, I want you in this church to keep going. In fact, this church needs you more in the interim than when I'm here. They're going to need your faithful giving, your faithful serving, your faithful prayers. They're going to need you to love one another, care for one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, forgive one another, bear with one another. All of those one another's you're going to need to do in that interim. But do all of that and more for Jesus. It's his church. He's the one who's at work in this world. And let's cast those crowns at his feet on that day together. And let's all give him praise and glory for what he's allowed us to do in his name. What I wanna do today is lead us in a word of prayer as we close this service. And I want us to rededicate ourselves to being men and women who live for Jesus. And the reason I shared this message with you today is to say thank you for letting me be your pastor. And I look at some of you in this room who you've been with me a long time. (laughs) And uh, you were here before I got here. And you endured me and put up with me and loved me and made me who I am today. Thank you for that. Thank you. Others of you came later. Others of you are brand new. Saying, what? I joined and he leaves. (laughs) Was it something I said? No, it was not anything you said. It's what God said. But I wanted to say thank you. I also wanted to preach this because I want you to pray now that God will send you that person who will fulfill that mandate. Who will not use people to build his ministry but we'll use his ministry of preaching the word to build God's people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this word. Thank you for this service of praise and observing communion. God, thank you for working in our lives during this time. And we do humble ourselves before you today, amazed at your grace, your forgiveness, your love, your mercy, your kindness towards us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you for saving us. It is more than we could ever understand or give you thanks for. And then on top of saving us, you let us serve you in your kingdom work and in a a life-changing ministry that will have dividends in eternity. It's more than we could ever thank you for. So whatever it is you've called us to do as a church, as individual Christians in your church, may we do it with our eyes on Jesus knowing that one day we'll stand before him and we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joys of your Lord. Thank you for the promise of your word that Jesus, you will never leave us, you'll never forsake us. You will be with us until the end of the age. And so just as Paul left the scene, Timothy was never alone. And just as pastors come and go in church life for one reason or the other, we are never alone. You never leave us nor abandon your church. Instead, you stay with us and the mission stays on us. Help us as Christians to be on mission to sharing your word with our world. Father, if there's anyone in this room who's never received Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today before it's too late that they would say, dear Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. I believe you rose from the dead having paid that price for my punishment and my forgiveness. And today I turn from my sin and I believe in you. I put my commitment, my faith, my trust in you and you alone. And I take you at your word that if I'll simply believe, I will not perish in my sin, but I will have the gift of eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. Help me to learn more about you. Help me to live for you through your church.